You seem a distant fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must get used to disappointment. And welcome, 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 welcome to the podcast that does what it says in the tin. It's best film ever. My name is Ian. And I'm Liam. And basically the way this works, Liam, for anybody who hasn't heard this before, is you and I, we go see a lot of movies together, don't we? We do indeed. Not anymore, necessarily. No. <laughs> not, no. not in the same space. Um, but uh, we do go see a lot of films. And we kind of view things from, I think, two different perspectives. Uh, I, I, I teach media and film studies. And uh, I hope I'm not super cold, but I do tend to maybe overanalyze things occasionally. And how would you describe how you look at films? Uh, I tend to see the heart and soul of the film. Yeah, I think that's a fair description. And then afterwards, we just have some discussions. So for Christmas, about 15 months ago, I bought you a 100-film bucket list poster, and we decided we were going to watch every film together. And we got up to about eight, I think, in the first year. And decided, first of all, we went, okay, we're not watching as many as we'd like. And secondly, we thought we should be documenting this. And therefore, the idea for a podcast was born. And I think we've, what episode is this? This is number six? Seven? Seven. This is episode seven. So seven, seven and seven weeks. So we've done our, I mean, we're kind of veered off the poster because, you know, social distancing and having access to the materials and da-da-da-da-da-da. But we've... Uh, We've managed to steamroll through, and usually we'd be here at the studio of awesomeness in East Anglia, but uh, as convention would have it now, we, we are located our sort of around a virtual roundtable, and we have of us two perma guests with us. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Hi, my name's Ellie, and I'm Georgia. And we've sort of had perma guests. We did at one point have fact check corner, but now it's more. I don't even know. I don't have a quippy idea for this. Just the virtual roundtable, I suppose. <laughs> and here we go. And on the docket for this week's uh, review is the Princess Bride, and this was brought to us by Georgia, I believe it was. It was, yes. It was my choice. Can you maybe run us by why you decided we should watch the Princess Bride this week? Um, I chose Princess Bride this week because we've been doing a lot of um, action-y stuff and quite a lot of hard-hitting kind of theory stuff. Or Nothing like that hard-hitting, action-packed theory of everything we did last week. Or, there, you didn't let me finish, come on! <laughs> please, please continue. So I decided to go with something a bit different, a bit more light-hearted, a little bit more warm and loving, um, but not necessarily any worse in fact i'd say a lot better than some of the ones we've seen before um and it happens to be one of my favorites i've also read the book and love the book it's absolutely incredible um but it's one of those cases where the film actually does do it justice as well so i chose it for that reason it's an interesting um argument because i was listening to a podcast we'll talk a little bit about a little bit later uh where they were having the discussion about how comedies tend to be uh, snubbed and there's a lot of snobbery in films, and uh, comedies get shortchanged by film critics or by things maybe maybe like this, because at the Oscars every year they really only care about dramas and serious period pieces, and it's never about a feel good movie. And that's I think what we have this week is definitely a feel good movie. Uh, and so we talked last week about warmth, and I th- that's where we'll go ahead and uh, go from here. But but first let's put a human touch on how are we all doing. It's uh, we've just passed. 
April. I don't know what the date is today, but we're in the middle of April. It's the 19th. It's the 19th. Okay. Uh, we're in the middle of April, April 19th. And uh, how are people doing here in uh, in social isolation, lockdown England? Well, I'm working loads of hours being a key worker. <laughs> God bless you, buddy. Um, so, yeah, that's what well, gets you out of the house, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a bit of a double-edged sword because you kind of don't want to be out amongst it, but you're also not driving yourself crazy, not doing anything. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of, it's, it is what it is. So you just get on with it. It's part of me that's quite jealous in some respects because I'm like, I'd really like to be out and just talking to, to as weird as it sounds, talking to random strangers, even in like just a perfunctionary work capacity. Um, but then I think the part that would annoy me is, okay, so I'm well enough to go talk to people at work, but then I have to go home and coop myself up once I'm off the clock. And when I was teaching those last couple of weeks, when people were starting to work from home and we hadn't been told as teachers yet to, to, to stay home, I was really getting kind of edgy when when you know there was a, everybody should be home by themselves and i'm going well no no you think I, you haven't shut the schools yet so it's okay for me to hang out with a thousand kids but i don't understand why i can't hang out with two or three people in the evening or, or you know i can teach a thousand students but don't let me go to the pub for a pint with five total people in the in the pub so that was a yeah. uh, a bit of a thing for me and i was so bored today everybody that i tried peanut butter marmite Oh, you can get God. peanut butter marmite at the grocery store oh. these days now. I know, and it's I thought my idea of hell. I thought I would try it because I was bored. Like, this is the highlight. I went grocery shopping. I went, <laughs> I went. Oh, this will be my entertainment for two pounds fifty. About this little measly jar of uh, marmite that was peanut two pounds fifty. Two pounds fifty. Wow. And so um, I tried it, and I don't mind. I, I very much like peanut butter, and. I kind of like Marmite. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm all right with it. And I thought, oh, it would be really, really interesting. And although you could taste both elements in it, and you could sort of say, yeah, it works, I don't think it moves it to anything better than either of them on, on their own accord. So that's been the – the fact that I've gone on about it now for about 90 seconds tells you <laughs> just how bored I am because – so as teachers, I finished my, my, my two-week break this, this evening. It's back to the home office, I guess, <laughs> tomorrow, but such is. Uh, Georgia, how have you been spending your time? Um. I recently bought a Switch. I think I mentioned it either on this podcast or on our sister podcast, Talking the Mickey. I ordered one. No. Um, back home, back home, a Switch is like a branch off a tree that you would cut off so your parent could whip you if you'd been bad. Maybe not some in Canada, but it's very much an American, go cut me a Switch. Uh, I'm guessing that's not what you bought. No, I bought a Nintendo Switch. Oh, okay. um, it is so cool named, I think, because you can switch it between different modes, I'm assuming, because it can be handheld or tablet or on the TV or whatever, um, which is pretty cool. Okay. I've been playing a lot of Animal Crossing. I've fallen into that trap, um, but it is very nice to have a bit of a break away from the strange reality that we're in and kind of just go and plant some trees that grow coconuts eventually. So I'm enjoying that, um, even if I'm being bossed around by a small raccoon. Um, but yeah, it's that's... That's been going all right. I played some Mario Kart today against my sister. She won all of them, but we we're only playing 50cc, so I came second. I thought it was okay. Um, oh, highlight of like three weeks today, a local um, fish and chip shop van was doing deliveries in Watlington. So we had fish and chips for tea. It was absolutely incredible because we've not had anything like mm. that in weeks. That's Obviously, cool. everything's been shut. Yeah. And so we're just kind of going, oh, this is amazing. Although I did remember that Domino's now deliver here. And Tuesday is coming up, so I might have to push for two Tuesdays. So food is what's keeping me going at the moment, if you can't tell. It really is amazing how something like a takeaway 
which was something that yeah. we did all take for granted. All of a sudden now it's like a small semblance of difference. I mean, I think for most people, my highlight of my week is going grocery shopping. I mean, that's my entertainment. I'm like, I can't, it, it's yeah. my favorite day of the week is the day I get to leave and like, <laughs> and like walk the little four aisles of food warehouse. I'm like, yes, this is great. I got out and saw people I didn't know who of course then make me upset because they're like walking all over the place and violating all the rules. But it's just the fact <laughs> that I can go, I saw someone else that I can, I didn't go and post it on Facebook, though. I didn't go, for everybody who's on... I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Because no. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that, that person at all. It's frustrating. I'm not going to care enough. That is not happening. To my mother, he's not talking about you. But, uh, yeah, no, you are a Karen. Bless you. Okay. And, Ellie, um, spending your time? Um, I've been on a Zoom call today with some friends. So that's been really nice. It's, um, it's actually a bit weird that some of my friendship groups, we can be really bad at keeping in touch with each other. Um, normally but since lockdown we've spoken more than we normally speak um, just because we're all a bit more free for things like video calls and it's it's that thing that's on everyone's mind is oh how can we get in touch we'll do we'll do a zoom call we'll do a skype call and we'll we'll reach out that way so it's actually made things quite a bit easier for some of my friends because we're very scattered around the country I will say that I find myself reaching out to people out of the blue more than I usually would in my day-to-day life beforehand anybody else find that you're just checking in with people and seeing how they're doing yeah yeah Yeah, i've been doing the same and i'm not very good with texting and stuff but every now and again i'll slide one text into somebody i spoke to for a few months it's good to catch up with an old friend and this week we caught up with one of my old friends anyway in the princess bride yeah nice segue as as far as the segues i do to get us into the films i'm quite happy with that one (laughs) So The Princess Bride, 1987, uh, directed by Rob Reiner. And the screenplay was written by William Goldman. And I bring up William Goldman because he also wrote the book. So, And the book and the film are somewhat different, if you've ever had a chance, the pleasure of reading the book. Uh, Two different tones, both brilliant, both brilliant, but just two very different spins on it. Uh, And they had been, when Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner, who... um, some people might know as the director of, um, oh, what's Stand the, by me. Pardon me. Stand by me. Stand. Did he do Stand by me? Yeah. He also did This is Spinal Tap. Yes. Yeah, and he tap, was an yeah. actor on All in the Family. Yeah. I don't know if that was a big hit over here. I, th- I don't think it necessarily crossed the pond. No. But um, he, after the success of This is Spinal Tap, he was hit up for what he wanted to do next, and he said, "I really like to do." The Princess Bride, and he was told, "Don't bother." People have been trying to make the Princess Bride since like 1973 or something like that. And Paramount or someone had bought the rights to it, and it didn't get made. And William Goldman bought the rights back to his own work and was just sort of hanging on to them. At one point, Christopher Reeve was signed up to play Wesley in a version of the Princess Bride, and wow. that didn't happen. Christopher Reeve, of course, being the original Superman that people might know from their television or film screens. Sorry. And so, but finally, uh, Rob Reiner goes and he sort of um, convinces Goldman that we should do this film. This would be a, a, a good shout. And so they film it in late 1986 uh, in England and Ireland, up in the Lake District for the most part. And they got um, Mark Knopfler <laughs> to do the music. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed Straits. that. Yeah, from Dire yeah, Straits. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's an interesting story about that. Um AFI, the American Film Institute, who we've referenced a couple times now, have listed it on the top 100 greatest love stories, and the Writers Guild of America call it one of the 100 greatest screenplays 
ever written. So it's it's definitely held to a high regard from those in the know, it would seem. And as a quick aside, I was listening to a different podcast this week, something called Quantum Week. It's a very interesting premise where they take a week in history and they go and they review a film that was big at the box office and they also review a song that was in the charts at that time, at that week, which I thought was really, really interesting. Yeah, I think you'd like it especially. And they were looking at uh, Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark and Ghostbusters, all in the same episode, which was quite interesting to hear them talk about it. 1984. 1984, very good. And yeah. they're actually doing like like a three-episode thing from 1984. I think they're doing Gremlins and, oh, what was that one by um, Cindy Lauper? Time After Time? Yeah. And they're doing something else. Um, but really, really interesting. But they made an argument that Ghostbusters might be the most quotable film of all time. And to that, I would ask, have you seen The Princess Bride? Because I'm going to sort of throw that question out throughout. Because I think this is one of the most catchy screenplays of all time. Like, these things have become part of the cultural vernacular in so many ways. And so I'll be interested to see how that goes coming forward. My, my question to you is, why have I never seen this film? That was my question. If anything, that's the question I have back to you. Why haven't you seen this film, Liam? Do you know? I have no idea. Oh, my God. That's like an all-star cast. Now, I've seen it and George has seen it, but Liam, you haven't seen it, and Ellie, you haven't seen it. Nope. I do wonder if it just wasn't as big a thing in, in the UK. I don't think so. I don't know, yeah. I've definitely heard it talked about before. So I've just I've just never seen it. I've obviously seen posters and DVDs of it, but by the looks of it, it's not something I'd just grab off the shelf. Yeah, and Ellie, you said you've heard reference to it. Yeah, definitely. Like I've I've had sort of other friendship groups that have been raving about the film and quoting it and talking about it in all sorts of different ways and as though it's a really popular film and I thought until we spoke to Liam about it last week um I thought I was the only person in the world that hadn't seen the princess bride oh, okay um so it was quite comforting to know that you hadn't either Liam so we won't do the, the we won't do the guess the IMDb game we'll just sort of jump into it we do know it was 8.1 by users and 97 percent by the critics. That's insanely high. So this is like a universally loved film. And the question is going to be why? And I, I'm going to make a quick statement at the start. I think it's got to do with the tone. They really get this charm about it that stops it from being, it's more warm and cute as opposed to hokey. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So. And there's no nastiness. No. There's no, there's no nastiness whatsoever. It's such, that's just <laughs> it's such an optimistic film, isn't it? And it's great. And it's hard to do that, even today, where I think it holds up still, and have it not come across. It's so easy to be cynical and go, let's tear that thing down. But I think The Princess Bride is like, how? why would you want to tear that down? I don't know. So we introduce, and it's just silence, and we get The Princess Bride up on the, up the, 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 the t- title card. And the first thing we hear is the coughing of a very young Fred Savage. And we get introduced to his bedroom, and it's got elements of Chicago sporting stuff all over the place. He's got Chicago Cubs. He's got a White Sox cap. He's got a Chicago Bears jersey he's wearing, which is great because they shot this in England. (laughs) 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 But they emulated. He's playing baseball, so we definitely know it's a British British film. It's an American film and an American story. And in come uh, Mum, and Mum says, your granddad's going to come see you. And the grandson doesn't want this because he's going to pinch his cheek and annoy him. And I'm like, is this the only boy who hates his grandfather? Quite like, possibly. <laughs> this, this, this isn't a trope you often see in, in film and media. The whole, no, I don't want to see my, 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 my 
my Espe- granddad. Especially a grandfather that is this awesome and like really warm and wants to spend time with him. It's not like he's got any like horrible features about him, is it? And the granddad comes in and it's Peter Falk. And the interesting thing is these two exist in their own little narrative outside of everything else we see. And it could have been really easy for them to feel disjointed or them to feel... And instead what we get is we get this wonderful mini story within the story or mini story outside of the story if you will about their relationship because he doesn't grandson doesn't want grandfather there he doesn't want him to spend time with him he certainly doesn't want to be read to and yet we see that relationship develop throughout the film and peter falk of course who we know uh liam you probably know peter falk yeah, it's Columbo. Columbo. And I, to be fair, I did think his performance was very Columbo-esque in this. <laughs> kind of like maybe slightly more crotchety, but yeah, just definitely yeah. Columbo-esque. Yeah. And Fred Savage from The Wonder Years, as well as many other things. Uh, yeah, both A younger generation might know him from Friends from College on Netflix or as the guy with the mole from Austin Powers' Gold Member. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're not supposed to talk about the mole. I've not seen any of those. Yeah. No. So. But yeah. this is Fred Savage, who at one point was my favorite actor when I was a kid. I love Fred Savage. I thought he was fantastic. It's pretty the same age as us. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe a so little bit older, but not much. Well, shoot, how old is he here? Well, we'll find out. Yeah. So we find a granddad's there. He's going to read him a book. It's a book that he read to his father, Fred Savage's father, who we never meet. And now he's going to read it to his grandson. So why dad's never read it to his grandson, to his own son. Man, it's getting confusing here. We don't know. <laughs> And so we find out very, very early on, we get the prologue and there's um, Buttercup and there's Wesley, the farm boy. And she's always bossing him around. And there's even every time that she says to him, every time he says to her, as you wish, which was a response to every one of her demands, that when he says, as you wish, she was really saying, I love you. And thankfully, Granddad's here to tell us all this stuff. And it could seem really, really hokey, but we have Mark Knopfler's little slide guitar underneath it playing like Buttercup's theme throughout. And the lighting's all soft. And the hair's always just swept ever so slightly in Wesley's face. And I think it's important you buy into this start or else the whole film, I think, hereafter doesn't really work. And so I'm curious from our two newbies, where were you at this part in the film? You're not going to like my comments about okay. a lot of this film. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really buy into it. Well, at the start, so I, I guess that uh, <laughs> kind of follows your logic as well, maybe. Uh, okay. Um, I didn't really think it was a particularly interesting opening scene. I found the um, the boy and the granddad really interesting, um, like that, and the swapping between the two narratives. I really liked that. Um but yeah, the the boy and granddad relationship was much more interesting to me than the other one. I thought there was going to be more of Fred Savage and Peter Falk, more than there was the Princess Bride, um, which later came on to be more of them than it did yeah. the grandson and the, the grandfather. Um, I thought I was going to focus more about them talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's this one little scene I do like um, in that early scene with the sunset. Yes. That was beautifully framed. I love that. And it's a film... Actually, I'm not going to have a lot to say about the cinematography in the film as as a whole. I don't think it's particularly well shot, but but, but that one was especially nice. It is interesting what you said about the granddad and the grandson because when they released it in the States, that was the poster. The poster was Fred Savage and the grandfather, which is completely like 
going to miss 85% of the film if that's what you're focusing your, your marketing campaign around. And I genuinely thought I was going to see more of them than the yeah. rest of it. Uh, and then when I didn't, I kind of thought, oh, okay. And I love the humor, mm-hmm. humor in it. It's, it's phenomenal. <laughs> and as they exit the prelude and there's a kiss, Fred Savage rips us out of, of the sort of story <laughs> and just goes, is this a kissing book? And we get the idea. Okay, he's well up for like you know the killing and the violence and the and, and the giants and all, but he doesn't want to hear the kissing. And that's kind of a little oh. mini narrative throughout. There's uh, a lovely little bit where his granddad turns around and said, "In a few years' time, I think you will. You will like the kissing bits, <laughs> yeah. yes." And so we learn that Gilder or Florin, whichever one they're in, they're in they're in Florin. Yes, they are. They're in Florin. Yeah. And we learned they have some strange marriage laws because apparently Prince Humperdinck, great name, can um, can just marry any girl he wants. <laughs> these, these these have a loss of the land, and the 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 use of Peter Fox narrator does help us speed up the story because rather than have to explain it away, they can just go. It's five years later. She's going to marry Humperdinck. She doesn't want to. He knows that. She knows that. But they're going to make this is the deal they've sort of come to is if she's not going to love anybody because she just tell us, I will never love again, then yeah. she may as well, she may as well be, be, a, be a princess out of it. And she cleans herself up and has a shower for once, and she looks a lot nicer <laughs> than she did at the start. So, fair, Although I thought she looked prettier as the farm girl, to be honest with you myself, but such is. Um, and then for some reason, like two minutes after the marriage announcement, she's riding by herself through the forest and encounters the three rogues, our rogues gallery, if you will. Vicini, Fezzik, and Inigo Montoya. <laughs> Georgia, what are your initial just thoughts when I bring up Vicini, Fezzik, and Inigo Montoya? They are my favorite. <laughs> uh, for, for anybody, my favorite three. So Georgia, for the people who don't have the benefit of being able to see, uh, is holding a little Funko Pop of Inigo Montoya. Does he have scars? He does. He does? Yes. That's very... But- uh, yeah. I'm trying to see. I don't. It's not really coming through on the Skype, but I will believe you, video scars. Uh, oh wait, okay. I think I think I kind of caught I'll it take there. I thought he was really unhappy, and I just realized it's his mustache. <laughs> it is his mustache, yeah. <laughs> and so we we get introduced to these three, and they kidnap very much the little man. Vizzini is in charge, which at first, I mean, that's just a great kind of dynamic, anyway, isn't it? Because we have Andre the Giant, who's like set legitimately seven foot four. And then we've got Wallace Shawn, who's, uh, if you've seen Clueless, he was the teacher in the debate class. Uh, He was in My Dinner with Andre. He's just, he just pops up a lot of places where you need that type. And Wallace Shawn, you guys might not know this. He got a history degree from Harvard. He studied economics at Oxford. He is a legit like professor and like fellow, but also acts on the side because, you know, some people just, you know, life isn't fair and they get to be good at everything. And there's an interesting story about him that I'll come back to a little bit later. But he's bossing around the the Spaniard who's really good with the sword and the giant and they're they're cowering and they're intimidated by him. I really liked it, the um, camera angles used in this scene as well because there's one bit where you're kind of – the camera's behind um, – what's his name? Fezzik? Yep. Uh, behind Fezzik's shoulder and, like, looking down towards Vizzini. <laughs> so it emphasizes the height difference even more. Yeah. 
And it's a really interesting little side note here is that Andre the Giant, of course, was a professional wrestler. Or maybe, of course, maybe you didn't know. Andre it was a professional wrestler. He headlined WrestleMania three with Hulk Hogan, one of the biggest, most notable uh, stars in the world. And he was the first choice they wanted for Fezzik. But he oh, was cool. so popular and uh, his schedule was so busy, they never thought they'd get him. So instead, there was another actor who had expressed interest, and his name was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. But by the time wow. they got the rights, Arnold Schwarzenegger was way too big of a star now, <laughs> and there's no way they would get him. And Andre's back started to play up, so he actually needed some time off, and it just happened to mix, mix perfectly. And so they gave him the role as Fezzik. How, Lightning in the bowl. Exactly. However, there is a problem in that uh, Andre the Giant is French. And his English is not very fluent when he speaks it. And he definitely can't read it. And he was, they brought him in for a test and they thought he looks perfect, but he couldn't read at all. And they're, oh. just, and they're just going, what do we do? So uh, what they did was they recorded all of his dialogue for him and put it on a cassette tape and put it into like a Walkman. And he would walk <laughs> around the set with the headphones on all the time so he could like learn the lines by hearing them rather than by reading them. It sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and another cute moment is that in some scenes where Robin Wright, the girl who played Buttercup, would be cold, Andre would put his hand on her head. And his hand was so big, it would like cover from her eyes halfway down her neck so she would be warm during these cold takes. Wow. So that was just a really sweet story. And then we get, they're going across, they've kidnapped the princess. We get some sort of an explanation that they're going to start a war with Gilder. And um, as they're arguing amongst themselves, our three rogues, Buttercup launches herself into the water, which, of course, is the water of the screaming eels. And just as one, we get this close up of this very bad quality eel. I mean, this is 1980. Four, seven. seven, sorry, 1987 um, special effects very much at the forefront. And then we cut to the grandfather telling the grandson, uh, I just want you to know she 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 doesn't get, get, get eaten here. <laughs> and it was great because it reminds us, oh, this is going to be a thing. We're going to see this throughout the film, which if you've read the book, the, the guy who's narrating the book um, does the same thing. He comes out of the stories and goes in these diatribes on it. So just a just a book recommendation. Get the book. It's 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 well worth it. It's a different story than this, but if you liked one, you'll like the other one for sure. You say that the eels had bad CGI, but I thought they were actually really scary. Well, well, no, I didn't say CGI, I said bad what? special effects. Okay, sorry. Because there was no computer. They're all, they're all actual, yeah. I thought they were really good. I thought they worked really well. Okay, so you and Elliot are both saying the practical effects of the eels were all right. I, I found them genuinely yeah. quite scary, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, maybe I'm just cynical. I, I did too. Okay, so I'm I'm outvoted three to one. That's fine. Uh, this would be a good time, George, maybe to go over the socials so people can tell me that they think I'm right. Hashtag Ian is right. Uh, what would the uh, what would the things be there? Ian, why don't you tell us the socials? <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us on the Twitter at Best Film Ever Pod and on Instagram at Best Film Ever Pod because it's important to have consistency in your branding as long as Twitter will allow it. And then we get to the end point, which is the Cliffs of Insanity. And one thing they did do well here was they named these places stuff that it would make you go, okay, I appreciate this. Uh, usually you got noun of adjective. So Cliffs of Insanity, Pit of Despair, things like this. Like was, Lake of the Shrieking Eels or yes, something. Uh, or Fire Swamp. So it was these, these, these places that become characteristic of their own. And so 
what happens is all the characters get out and the, in premise Fezzik is supposed to be with his brute strength they're all sort of hanging off his back he is with his upper body strength carrying all of them up the sides of real cliffs um i i, I did have the name of the cliffs and i've forgotten them but uh, this was these were not the actors uh, these were stunt people and it was obviously very much a crane shot that took place but as they get as they get to the top, though, they do switch it, and it is the real actors, and it is a soundstage in somewhere in England. And it is 30 feet up in the air, though, and they're on this little five-foot-by-five-foot five platform on a forklift. And the guy playing Vizzini, Wallace Shawn, is freaking out, and he said afterwards, if he'd known he was going to have to do this, he wouldn't have accepted the role. Wow. He's really scared of heights. He's that scared of heights, even though he's literally strapped to Andre. Like, he can't, like, he, he literally can't fall off this. And unless Andre falls unless off. Andre <laughs> and apparently Andre just went to him. He says, relax, boss, I'll take care of you. And that was all it took. And then he was, and then he was all right and gave, gave a pretty good performance. We're going to find out Wallace Shawn was, was kind of a twitchy individual throughout. And so they get up to the top and they find out all along this way that there's a man in black who's been chasing them, both on the boat. They see him there. And then he starts scaling the Cliffs of Insanity at a faster pace. So they try to cut his rope. It doesn't work. The man in black is clinging to the cliffs. And there, here comes the plan. So Vizzini comes up with it because Vizzini is the brains. It's been established. They're going to leave Inigo to kill him with the sword if he makes it to the top alive. If not, then they will be Fezzik. And if not, then we'll leave Vizzini for last as the boss level. And so um, there's this great moment where um, we find out Inigo does not like to wait. <laughs> and so he goes over and says... Can I interject yes. quickly? You've missed one of my favourite little lines. Please do. Now, I don't know whether you're actually in the book or not. Um, he, music uh, says to Inigo, he says, you be careful, people in masks cannot be trusted. And it made me wonder if perhaps it was a throwback to his wrestling career at all, if it was a bit of a reference, because I don't remember reading it in I the book. absolutely um, think but- it's a wrestling reference, yes. Certainly I, I think well, though, and it really made me happy that he said that. Yeah. And Andre himself used to perform underneath a mask as well as a, as a wrestler uh, called Super okay. Machine. I didn't, I didn't know that he did or not. Yeah, not very well I known in North America, so I'm not sure it necessarily is about Andre, but you could read it that way. But definitely, yeah. it's, it's, it's definitely a wink, I think, to his wrestling background. And I think it does age well. I think all you need to know is that Andre was a wrestler at some point. I meant because of yeah. coronavirus. Oh, well, actually, there's going to be something we can link to coronavirus coming up oh, soon. Oh, I know. People in masks cannot be trusted. I get that. Yeah. So, uh, also, there's a couple more things we haven't touched on. The movie's so quotable. But there becomes a bit where we find out that Fezzik and um, Inigo are very close. And they have this game. I guess the, the trope being, because Fezzik is so big, he's a little dim. And so Inigo, to keep his spirits up after he's been yelled at by Vizzini for the thousandth time... Starts playing the rhyming game, and he just gives a line, and then all Andre Fezzik has to do is say another line that re- repeats. And so something like, we hope we don't come do any harm, and Fezzik responds, he's kind of slight on charm. And Bassini gets <laughs> mad and says, come on, silence, I mean it. And then we get Fezzik's maybe best line of the whole thing, where he just goes, does anybody want a peanut? <laughs> and it's just great and actually that line is referenced in the film I Love You Man if anybody's ever seen that they do bring that one back um, and every time the man in black doesn't disappear Vizzini keeps saying inconceivable and apparently this guy can't go anywhere in this world without yeah. being said uh, that something is inconceivable I counted 
repeated. He says it five times in the film. Five times. Every single oh, time, all? it does not actually make sense. No, he says like... He's used wrong every single time. And it's actually at the cliffs where Inigo looks at him and goes, you keep saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Yeah. Which is great. The um, inconceivable is the only like sort of quote that I knew before watching the film. Oh, okay, yeah. um, So I think it's probably on a lot of memes and stuff, yeah. but... I was very aware that he was going to say it, and I, yeah, it came up a lot. I threw up on on some of my personal social media. Hey, what's your most memorable thing from um, Princess Bride? And thought I'd just get nothing but inconceivables. I didn't get a, a, a fair. What I got more than anything else was the you keep using that word. I don't think you, it means what you think it means. <laughs> so that was quite good. Um, and so back to an ego who cannot help waiting and would have hated the fact that we just did like a three minute aside on that. But he tells the man in black, hey, you, can, you can you can hurry up. And he goes, well, no, I'm kind of trying to climb the cliffs. And so he offers him a rope. But the man in black says, I can't trust you. And then this is where Inigo says, on, on the soul of my father, you will reach the top. And, and, and the man in black's just in. He's like, all right, absolutely. Let's do this. And lets him up. And we find out at this point, we're going, okay, Inigo's a good guy. He is a good guy. Though he warns him, when you get to the top, I will kill you when you get to the top. And the man in black goes to get a sword. He goes, no, no, take your time. Rest up. Because we've been told before this that Inigo's so confident he's going to kill him left-handed as they duel because he's that good of a fencer. He's been training for 20 years to kill um, to kill the man with six fingers. Uh, which he killed was, his father. Who killed his father. Which we find out in the conversation as with Wesley at the top. He says, you don't happen to have six fingers in your right hand by any chance. And they go, no, 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 no. Why? And he says, well, man with six fingers killed my father. At this point, did anybody else notice that Inigo literally hands him the sword for him to check out? Yes, he does. Yeah. <laughs> Which, talk about trusting. I mean, <laughs> the man in black had just grabbed the sword and stabbed him, <laughs> but doesn't. Oh, this is my favorite scene of the whole film. Which is? Like this, this scene oh. coming, that they're doing. And it's, it's, I absolutely love it. I think they'd like the fact it's your favorite because this is something they, they tried out to call. The, the theory was they were going to create the world's greatest sword fight scene ever and it was the last it was among the last scenes they shot of the films so they would have all the time to practice it and they practiced it like four or five hours a day um with the same guys who did like um the sword uh, the, the lightsaber duels in star wars the same guys who choreographed that now i don't know about you liam but like early Star Wars is just two guys just sort of slightly moving their hips and like moving their arms. Yeah. Like it wasn't great sword fighting by any means, but nonetheless, uh, it's the same guys and they really wanted to do the best ones ever. So when they weren't sword fighting, they were sent home to watch. They got video copies of all these old great sword fighting movies and were told, watch these and learn how to do it left-handed. And they went to Rob Reiner and said, here's what we've got. And Rob Reiner went, that's it. Because originally it was like five minutes it took them to do it, but they got so good at it and mastered the moves, they had it done like a minute and 27 seconds. So he's like, no, it needs to be at least three minutes long. So they had to like do all this extra work to like make it go even longer. And with the exception of the this, this shot where they flip and, uh, and do dismounts off of the tree branch, with yeah. the exception of that, every other frame of that is those two actors. Brilliant. So, so I think you have to give them credit because they learned how to sword fight left-handed and right-handed. Yeah, I love it. Really it's well, well. Re- really well. And the, the idea was they went, look, we're, we're not trying to pretend we're Olympic level fencers, but we want it to be only the most discerning of people will be able to tell what that how we're cheating on this if we are at all. 
Yeah. So I felt really, really strong. They did it really well. Yeah. And in the last show we did together, Liam and Georgia had a sword fight as yes. well. <laughs> which, I, which, which, which I think I think I call the world's worst sword fight. That was what I was yeah. looking for. <laughs> so we've got the we've got, we've got the, the, the the two extremes here. Did anybody else notice in this scene that um, you know in Into the Woods with Agony? Did you, did you not feel that had the same feel to it? You know, whether being whether being um, uh, the the fighting against each other, but in a nice way. There's a, an admiration. A very, like, there is a competitive, but and they're exchanging this witty repartee back and forth where they go you are wonderful and he goes thank you i've tried so hard with you only so then i uh, at one point he goes i have to admit it you're better than me he goes well then why are you smiling because i know something you don't know i yeah. i'm not left-handed <laughs> but then of course he gets the upper hand and he goes i have a secret to tell you that i am not left-handed either and if you go and you look at it if you look back in the film um Mandy Patankin, as he plays Nigel Montoya, keeps – even though he pretends to be left-handed, he still does things like he throws down the rope with his right hand. He helps him up with his right hand. He hands him the sword with his right hand. But if you look at Carrie Elwes, who plays um, the man in black, everything he does – he takes the he, – he hands back the sword with his left hand. So he's actually really fully committed to the bit – as he goes up, he reaches for the rope with his left hand. So it was an interesting idea that um, his level of like, something so subtle, like I'm never going to pick up on that, really, am I? And I don't think the average person is either. But you go ahead and someone noticed that, and I just nicked the idea off of them yeah, on like, that. So at the end, um, Man in Black wins. Uh, as as he can't kill um, an ego because he's too great of a swordsman, and I think he believes in his cause. And says, I hold you in the highest respect. And then he knocks him out. Just before that, though, we do get another brilliant little quote of um, our... What is it? Sorry, I've got it written down. And he goes, ask him, who are you? We get the answer, <laughs> no one of consequence. I must um, know. He replies, I must know. And then he gets, get used to disappointment. Get used to Which I think is brilliant and is a very good... Very good gift to send to people when they ask you for things. Um, but uh, <laughs> I really, really... Really, really enjoy that little bit as well. I think everything that comes out of Wesley's mouth is incredible. And then it's this wonderfully tacky 80s score underneath it, like synthesized <laughs> trumpets. Ba 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 And the whole it's, way... It's very sweet vibe there. It is. It's brilliant. As he progresses from villain to villain, behind him is Prince Humperdinck, who keeps saying things like, it's the, Gilder will pay for what they have done. But you find that he's actually a brilliant tracker. Like he can, he can, he goes through and goes, oh, there are two masters here. They're wonderful. And the loser ran that, but the winner ran that way. And you're like, okay. and this is by Chris Sarandon, who was the ex-husband of Susan Sarandon. I was going to say, I thought it might have yeah, been. Yeah, which was, which, was, which was quite interesting, I thought. Yeah. And he loved the Princess Bride and said he was thrilled when he got the call that they were considering him to be in the film. He's like, oh, most of the actors who were involved in this actually had a backstory with having been familiar with the material, which is great. And then he moves on to level two, which is Fezzik. And Vizzini tells Fezzik, you dispatch it from your way. And Fezzik goes, well, what's my way? Hide behind, hide behind this, this boulder. And when he shows up, hit him in the head with a rock. And Fezzik goes as he runs away Fezzik just goes my way is not very sportsmanlike <laughs> and so he comes by and Fezzik 
purposely misses him with the rock and explodes in glorious 80s special effects way. And he says, let's just fight this fair. And uh, the man in black goes, oh, what, you mean like fist to fist? That doesn't really sound that fair. And Fezzik goes, well, it's not my fault. I'm the biggest and the strongest. And Andre the Giant's back is so bad at this point that actually they had to rig up um, Wesley with like little stools and stuff. So he was putting as little pressure on Andre's back as possible. Wow. But there was a point where Andre leans back and he leans back with a little bit too much oomph. And he can sort of like knocks Wesley a little bit silly in real life. He knocks uh, Carrie Elwes a little bit, a little bit loopy. So as Fezzik, uh, as he beats Fezzik, uh, <laughs> he knocks him out. How does he knock him out? Anybody remember? He pushes him into the, um, they like go backwards enough that he manages to push him forwards. I think, and he knocks, just knocks his head and falls okay. over. And there's a brilliant line that he gives yes. him as he's putting, like rolling him back over, which is, do you mind if I do it? Absolutely. Please do. He says, I do not envy the headache you will have when you awake. In the meantime, rest well and dream of large women. Dream of large women. <laughs> then he put him in a chokehold. I think he, maybe he does knock him out with a sleeper hold. Maybe that's he, it. Yeah. Which would be another. Sure which would be another great reference to his wrestling past, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's a sleeper hold? That's what I thought. Anyway, a sleeper hold is when you. That's really how do you you get behind? Well, we saw it on the film, but <laughs> you get behind someone and you sort of wrap the instep where the whatever this would be called the end step crease of your, your elbow the, yeah the crease of your elbow kind of around not choking him but around his neck so that your wrist is kind of blocking off the car- the carotid artery and they pass out from lack of airflow to, okay. the, to, to the head is is at least the, the sort of gimmick of what's done <laughs> so, so wesley passes that and he goes on to beat vicini and vicini is waiting with a knife to buttercup's throat and says he's gonna have to if wesley wants her he's gonna have to beat him in a battle of wits because Vizzini is the world's smartest man. <laughs> and the man in black goes, oh, you're that confident in yourself? He goes, yes. Have you ever heard of Socrates, Plato? And when Wesley goes, yes, he goes, morons. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. And so the gimmick is, uh, Wesley then goes, okay, I'll challenge you to a, the man in black says, I'll challenge you to, to, a, uh, to a game of wits. And he takes out a poison, Iocane powder, which you can't smell and instantly dissolves and all that stuff. But he's put it in one of the two glasses. And he puts the two glasses on the table. And the gimmick is, Vizzini gets to choose. Then we both drink. And when we drink, we'll find out who is alive and who is right and who is dead. And there's a bunch of back and forth. And it's a great speech done by Wallace Shawn, where he's just going, like, it's like paranoia run amok, trying to figure out what's what's going on. Is it a double bluff or a triple bluff? Yeah, it's not whatever a triple bluff, because I simply cannot choose the cup in front of me. But I simply cannot choose the cup in front of you. And what's really interesting is somehow Wallace Shawn found out he was not the first choice for this film. Rumor has it the first choice was um, Danny DeVito. And the second choice was Richard Dreyfus. Um- Really? Yeah, I I get DeVito, I don't get Dreyfus. But as a result, Wallace Shawn was so insecure on the set, he felt that he was going to be fired any moment. That he was going to be fired. He kept telling everybody, I'm going to be fired, I'm going to be fired. He would go to like the assistant director going, I know you're going to fire me. And if you watch, you can see how sweaty he is. That's not acting. That's him being so nervous. Apparently he broke out in hives because he was that convinced he was doing it wrong. And in a book I read for some research for this called As You Wish, which is written by Carrie Elwes himself, 
other members of the, of the cast get to sort of chime in with little little moments. And he says that the ghost of Danny DeVito haunted him. They shot that for two days straight, and he spent every moment thinking he was going to be fired. It was also the first scene that um, it was also his first day of shooting was was was, was that scene. <laughs> And so he puts a little message out that says, maybe if you're an agent, don't tell someone you were the director's third choice. Just just, just don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and so I also felt nervous because he couldn't do an Italian accent. He could only do this like sort of traditional Jewish sort of New York accent. And he went, whoever you are, that's who Vizzini is. Run with it. And I think Wallace Shawn's great in this scene. I do, I do. Yeah, I think he's absolutely brilliant. He had another really nice little line that I liked. It was... Um... You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. <laughs> yes. And so uh, at one point, the man in black goes, you're bluffing. He goes, I've not even begun to start. You've And then he goes, what's over there? And when he turns his back, he switches the cups, which is actually really, really clever. Because if you buy the premise, the man in black has no idea which one's whatever. When he goes to lift it up, he waits for the man in black to drink his cup first. Which if you're Bazzini, takes you all the things to go, well, then therefore you think that's the safe cup, which I actually have. I'm going to drink. And of course, yeah. he, he gets a little bit too uh, excited about his victory. Comes out with another great line. You've forgotten the, one of the most common blunders in military history. The most common is uh, don't never get involved into a land war in Asia. But the second most is never go into a battle of death. Battle of wits. I think it was death. With, with a, no, never into a battle of wits with a Sicilian when death is on the line. And as he's yeah. laughing, he then falls over to the side. And the joke is, they both had Iacane powder in them. Um, the, the, the man in black had been spending the last two years building up an immunity to it. So he'd won the battle of wits from the very moment that uh, Vizzini agrees. And that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the brilliant part. You can kind of argue he cheats here. You can kind of argue he cheats because it's the one character that Wesley doesn't, in essence, kill. Yeah. Just a thought. And so... He finally has rescued Buttercup, but Buttercup's not having it because she sees that Prince Humperdinck is ready to rescue her. And then we find out that the man in black is not just the man in black. He is the Dread Pirate Roberts. And the Dread Pirate Roberts tells Buttercup how he killed Wesley and says, did you wait a whole five minutes before mourning him before you got engaged? To be fair, it has been five years. I think, <laughs> I think the man in black's being, I think Dread Pirate Roberts is being a little harsh. Just a tad. He's heartbroken. Leave him be. I don't know if anybody noticed this, but um, at this point in the film, the man in black, the Dread Pirate Roberts, is walking with a bit of a limp. And what happened was Andre the Giant was so big, they had to give him an ATV to get around the set, especially up (laughs) towards those hills. And he kept bragging about it and kept telling Carrie Elwes, you have to try this, this, this ATV out. And he was like, no, 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 no. He said, no, no, you really have to try it out. And so he hops in the ATV, but sure enough, he gets in an accident in it. And so he like bends his toe completely the wrong way. Like he breaks his big toe. And so he had to shoot this scene next. So when he goes and sits down, when he's like really confronting her, he like extends his leg out, like almost like, like, the one leg sits down like he usually would, but the left leg, he just sort of extends fully out to the side. And everyone thought he was just being really, really graceful the way he was and going, man, he just gets this character. But no, it's just the fact that his, he can't put any weight on his big toe. 
So for all those people out there who don't know, an ATV is oh an all-terrain vehicle. It's like it's it's like a, it's, a, it's like a four-wheeler. If I say four-wheeler, does does that help? Like a Okay, yeah. a quad bike. A quad bike, yeah, I'll be it. Yeah. Thank quad you bike. for that, Liam. <laughs> and so, um, they talk about, and they kind of take turns with each other, getting mad at each other. And she says, "You mock my pain." And this is probably one of the best ones. Life is pain, princess. Anything who says anything <laughs> different is selling you something. And I'm like, oh, and that's a bit. The book's a little bit darker in tone, and that that quote's a bit more prominent in the book, but. Uh, still a great line. And then as he looks over to see Humperdinck in the distance, she pushes him down the, uh, they're on the side of like a, I don't know, a hill? What would you call it? It's not really a cliff. It's a really <laughs> steep hill. Steep hill. A steep hill. Yeah. And he goes, you can go ahead and die or something. And she pushes him. And as he's rolling, he goes, as you wish. Now, I'm assuming the two of you knew it was Wesley all along. But can I just oh, get confirmation yeah, yeah, yeah. on that? Well, not not the entire time, but well before she oh, pushed yeah. him down the hill. Only right from the beginning. Okay. So, there we go. I, I was just assuming. Cause it, 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 it is a kid's movie. It's not meant to be this great twist. I always knew it was him. But did you also notice that when she went down the hill, she mimicked him falling down the hill? (laughs) She like threw, she just throws herself down the hill. She realizes, as (laughs) you wish, it's Wesley. And so rather than like walk down, she's just like, maybe it's her punishment. She has to throw herself down the hill. (laughs) And apparently, apparently. It's the quickest way to get down the hill, isn't it? Yeah. Apparently, if you're really good with, like, a, a pause button on your PlayStation or DVD player or whatever, you can actually see if it's just some guy with a mustache. And like, like, you can definitely see who the stump person you know, is. Red yeah. <laughs> and so they get to the bottom and they run off into the fire towards the fire swamp. And you can hear very much see that he's limping. As they run away, he's very badly limping as they run towards the fire Because of his broken toe. Because of his broken toe. (laughs) But you can easily play it off as because of the fall down the hill, which is really great. But as I was reading the book... I think I I thought that was what it was in that scene, actually. Which you make, man, he just gets how to act. No, he just can't put any weight on his toe because he he was an idiot and shouldn't have gone on the quad bike. There was this great moment where they're talking to each other. And and he, he does ask, he goes, darling, why didn't you wait for me? And she goes, well, you were dead. <laughs> Still though, I'm like, Come on. she waited for five years. To be fair, man, I, mean, I think it'd be a little bit unreasonable. Is that where he says death cannot stop true love? Death, All it can yeah. do is delay it for a while. That's exactly where he says it. Yeah. And they walk to the fire swamp, and this is where we get his backstory. So for five years, he's he was the sort of page, if you will, the the, the first mate to the, the the valet to the dread pirate Roberts, who sent him to bed every night. Um. He was going to kill Wesley, and then Wesley says, you can't kill me. I, I, I have true love to live for. And that resonates with the Dread Pirate Roberts. And he says on the bed every night, with good night, Wesley, good work. I'll probably kill you in the morning. <laughs> he does this for years. <laughs> Until finally he reveals that he's not the Dread Pirate Roberts. His name is Ryan. And the Dread Pirate Roberts is just a mantle that gets passed down from pirate to pirate to pirate. And whenever they want to make a switch, all they do is just take on a new crew and call each other by... Dread Pi- they switch places and one becomes the Pirate Roberts and one becomes the first mate and you pass that down and that's really what the Dread Pirate Roberts has been doing all this time which she's okay with she doesn't seem to mind that he didn't like send out word that he was okay which I think yeah it's a bit weird doesn't it I mean I, I think this movie gets away with a lot because it's it is just like a it, it because it's a story being read by a grandfather to a grandson I think some of the plot holes you can go it's it's just it's just a fairy tale isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. and a lot of if you 
if you read the book, a lot of it is explained away again because the person interject who's i believe the version of it in the book is that rather than a grandpa reading the story it's someone editing down the story because if not it's too long and so he will like cut into the book and go hang on this is what happened here in shorter terms um and we'll kind of explain away yeah bits like bits of the plot holes that otherwise are in there just in his own in his own way which i think is absolutely brilliant in the to book- write a book in fashion is in the book william golding the actual author is pretending he's uh, transcribing it from the original language into some other language and it's like commenting on here i've edited out 12 pages of complete drivel trust me you're you're the better for it so again another recommendation for the book probably amazon.co.uk you can probably get in a couple of weeks highly recommended um inside they go to the to to the fire swamp and there is uh they're just talking and then um, what's her name? Buttercup falls into the lightning sand and disappears. Oh no! It's no. on fire. Oh, have I... her dress is on fire. Oh, her dress is on fire. That's right. I'm sorry. Her dress catches. There's a, nice little, there's a nice little moment where he. It's like a ballet. It is he a ballet. Move her, and it's very brilliant. I love it. That was their first day of filming. Oh, was it? That was. And so they're sitting there, and and all of a sudden they're sitting there. And her dress catches on fire as it was supposed to, and it's made, and the dress is made out of fire retardant material. So all you have to do is like push it together, and the, and the flame goes out. But as they shoot it, they hear someone scream out, "Her dress is on fire!" And it turns out <laughs> it's William Goldman, the person who wrote this into the script, and should know beyond anybody else that it's that it's coming. <laughs> But he's the one. He just couldn't contain himself. And he said he was very, very nervous. He was on stay, He's on set for large parts of the shoot. And it's maybe a good time to talk about um, Robin Wright, who played Buttercup, because they tr- auditioned like 500 women for that role. Wow. And the way Robin Wright tells it is that they were just exhausted of looking and they were just going to cast whoever else came into the room. But to hear Rob Reiner and William Golding talk about it, when she came into the room, she was wearing this little sundress, her long blonde hair, and she was backlit naturally by just the sun as she came in. And she thought it was just like she'd been cast by God rather than anything. She, went, she is Buttercup. But That's she, she was working on an American soap opera. And so in order to do Princess Bride, they made her add a year to her contract, which is kind of a jerk move on their part, but very clever because she was going to be a much bigger star at the end of this. Yeah, and so they uh, ran with that, and so that was kind of the deal that was made. And her English accent is perfect, probably because she has an English stepfather. So every one of the British actors commented on how solid her uh, British accent was, despite being from Texas of all places. Oh wow! I yeah. didn't realize her actual no, accent would have been quite that. So then we get to the lightning sand. And she disappears, and then the Dread Pirate Roberts, Wesley, as we now know him, dives in headfirst into the sand to rescue her. And he actually had to fight for that. The, originally, it was called that he was supposed to jump in feet first and plug his nose. And he went, <laughs> he said, that doesn't seem very uh, Errol Flynn or yeah. Douglas Fairbanks, which are kind of what they were looking for, that kind of old Robin Hood sort of classical movie hero type. He went, it'd be much more hero if you, pardon me? He even cuts the vine. He does. He used it as a rope. And if you look at um, how it, it, it looks great in the way they do it, but you need to realize that's like sand 
plus like a, a trap door, plus like foam padding at the bottom. And so there are all these legitimate safety concerns where like if he doesn't hit his mark or if they don't open the trap door on time or if when he falls, he doesn't fall at the right angle, um, it could go very, very badly and you could break, you could break your neck. Yeah. But he fought for it and won and it looks much better, I think, for it, the way he does it. it, it it's quite badass the way he jumps in. It so is, yeah. And then we get to the fight with the R.O.U.S.s, the rodents of unusual size. Oh, I my God. <laughs> really? They're amazing. The puppetry is incredible. For when this was made, they are incredible little pieces of kit. Whatever right. they were, I'm assuming they were some sort of an- robotic animatronic. No. Um, are they not? What are they? There is a little person sewn into it. Yeah, oh and so he's That's fighting. Incredible. He's fighting one little person. I think his name was Danny. And there's a great story about this: is that he was supposed to set up, and Danny doesn't show up to the set. <laughs> so they go ahead and go. What are we going to do? And like, well, so they went. Well, K- Carrie Elwes is going. Can I fight one of the other two? And they went, No, only one of them's. It's a union thing. Only one of them is like a stunt man inside of it. Everyone else is just like walking puppets, but there's one who's the one who you're allowed to like use for stunts. We can't get around it. So if he doesn't show up, you're going to have to wrestle like just like a rubber mold instead rather than like a little person in it. Might as well have done. And um, then it shows up. Danny shows up at like two in the afternoon. (laughs) Everyone's like, what happened? What happened? And the story is he went out the night before, had a few too many pints, got into his car, and it's, of course, it's a car, but he has to go see, he has to sit on like telephone bo- books because he's a little person and he drives with his hands. There's like special like s- sticks for it. And so he says, I got pulled over for speeding. I couldn't have been speeding because I have a little person car and apparently they don't go fast enough or something like that. But once they realized he'd been drinking, they threw him in jail for the night. And they said, no, no, you can't throw me in jail for the night. I'm an actor. And they didn't believe him. They said, well, fine. What are you playing? He said, I have to get sewn into this giant rat suit tomorrow <laughs> and get set on fire. And, of course, they just went, you're just drunk and you're lying. So it wasn't until he managed to phone someone on the production team to come bail him out <laughs> that it actually happened. So they, they did manage to get their scene done, which was great. But I thought a fantastic story. And, Leo, I'm interested in getting your take on this because Georgia clearly thinks it's brilliant. Ellie clearly thinks it was not brilliant. What's your take on the rodents of unusual size? I didn't like the rodents of unusual side size um, until he kills it. Okay, and then I then I felt sorry for it. That's the only yeah. part of the film I don't like. Okay, like when he kills it. Yeah, I hate that bit. Oh, and I felt sorry for it. I was so, so glad. Yeah. Um, so I didn't like, didn't like the look of them to start with but then i felt sorry for it once he killed it (laughs) and this is the thing if it was today it would obviously be some slick cgi thing but i think bits were like you have obviously it's a little person inside the rodent of unusual size and the cliffs looking a little bit dodgy and all that stuff i think it's part of the charm where you go they don't don't make they don't make movies like that anymore you know what i mean yeah you know the bit where he runs towards him the rodent runs towards him yeah you can clearly see that's a human oh, being. It's just someone on all fours. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, I so didn't cool. pick that up. I've watched <laughs> the film several times, and I did not pick that up. Yeah, it very oh, much. Oh, I is. totally picked that up. But what I really like just before, just before that, we get a lovely, another lovely quote from Wesley. We get what? I'm not saying I want to build a summer home here, but the trees are really quite lovely. 
And as someone who spends a lot of time outside admiring trees, I thought that was great as well. And actually, that's a line that Cariel was required multiple prompts on how to say because you couldn't get summer home correctly. You hit summer <laughs> and not home. But apparently Cariel was going summer home. And he went, no, no, it's summer home. <laughs> So he tried to explain, you know, because of the climate in England, he said, we don't have summer homes, really. And he went, fair enough, but we're selling this to a global audience. So <laughs> they finally get out of the fire swamp and they're met immediately by Count Rugen, Prince Humperdinck and the soldiers. Um, they accuse Wesley of causing kidnapping and they're going to kill him if he doesn't go back. And Wesley's 100% in for dying. He's like, death first. And then Buttercup goes, promise you won't hurt him. And they make the deal that they'll put Wesley back on his boat if they spare his life. Everybody moves away. Um, as as they're taking Buttercup away, the prince says, "Wait till we're gone, then throw him in the pit of despair." And uh, as soon as the as Buttercup leaves, Wesley says he knows what the deal is. Let's just get this over with. And it, as just before the end, he goes, "I can't help but notice you have six fingers on your right hand." To Count Rugen. At which point, Count Rugen takes his sword and slams him on the head with it, and down falls Wesley. A little-known fact about this scene is, early takes, he was not being hard enough, and it looked bad. So, Carrie Elwes said, give it some welly, right? Like, like, actually hit me with it. Not realizing, it's a real sword. So, like, it's a steel hilt. So, when it comes down... That's the last thing he remembers that day because wow. he falls over and lands and wakes up in hospital getting his head sutured oh, up. Oh, wow. And so he says, the best part is, though, that's the take they use in the film. <laughs> so he said, if, he's, if it looks like I'm overacting, he said, I'm really not. Well, you would want it legit. to be the take used, wouldn't you? Because otherwise it just wouldn't be worth yeah. the injury. And but. apparently Christopher Guest, who plays that role, felt terrible, as you would. <laughs> but he went, no, no I'm, the, I, I'm the guy who asked for it. You just did what, what, what you were told yeah. to do. It sounds like he really got in the walls in this film. So uh, he wakes up. He's in the uh, Wesley's being cared to by the albino, the albino which who was, is, yeah. which is Mel Smith. Yeah, Mel Smith. What do you? T- I'm, I'm, I'm an outsider to be sure. Why don't you tell me who Mel Smith is? Mel Smith is part of a double act um, who, through the eighties, were huge, and. I don't think they transferred over the pond. No, no, no. Um, but they were just mainly British, I guess. But they were huge over here. So for me to see Mel Smith in this movie was like, oh, my God. And this happened quite a lot through the movie. For me, yeah. Seeing all these different people crop up. Because you would never have put Mel Smith with the likes of Billy Crystal. Yeah. Um, uh, Andre the Giant. Um, and all these other different people, and you're just like, oh my god, this is incredible! Because such a mix match of people. Um, so for me, it was it was great to see him because straight away I recognised the voice, but I didn't recognise his look. Mm-hmm. So once he got closer to the camera, I then went, ah, Smell Smith, that's cool. Carrie Elwes was really excited when he found out he was on board. He went, no, no, this is really good because I believe he did a show called Not the Nine O'Clock News or something like that I was reading. And Rowan Atkinson was part of that troupe or something like that? Rowan Atkinson, uh, Pamela Stevenson, he's married to Billy Connolly. Okay. Yeah, so there's quite a few people in it. And so um, we end up with, he's down there and he starts off with the whole, you're in the pit. And he sort of coughs and he goes, you're in the pit of despair. (laughs) I'm like, that was a fun little fake out. 
It said Mel Smith, I believe it was him, who said he he would not go back and ever watch that role because he hated the prosthetics on his face so much. They caused him so much pain and anguish, he didn't want to be reminded of it. And so he never went back and watched it again. Wow. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's an interesting uh, little little tidbit. And then we find out there's a machine. And Count Rugen uses Mel Smith the albino. Or what would you say here? Albino? Yeah. Okay. Albino, albino. Um, and there's a machine that sucks sort of life out of you and a little interesting stories they had to put little like scotch tape on the suction cups because it kept falling off <laughs> carry <Carrie> Ellis. <laughs> and so um they suck a year of his life away uh rugen asks how does it feel wesley cries and then we cut to um sorry in response to his cry yes he goes oh interesting oh interesting and then we cut to Inigo montoya who's drunk which was kind of laid back earlier. We were told that before uh, Vicini meets him, he was just a drunk. So he's back at the beginning. And you go at the beginning when it's the beginning. And it means um, Fezzik has been hired to be on the Brute Squad to help clear things up for the wedding. And Fezzik is told that he's got to take care of his rowdy. But, of course, it's an ego. And so Fezzik takes care of an ego. He sobers him up. Uh, and then they decide that they need to find someone who can help them raid the castle. And they go, I know who. The man in black. Because for some reason, Fezzik knows there's a six-handed man inside the castle. That part was kind of yada, yada, yada over. Yeah, that wasn't really made clear. That wasn't made clear, but... It's no. Count Rugen that organizes the brute squad, though, isn't it? Oh, no, it's not. It's it's that red-headed uh, guy's name. Wallin or Wellin like, yes. or... Yeah. I should imagine that they've probably seen him there and they've noticed, he's noticed it. Maybe he was telling them the six responsibilities of being... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and when he realized you can use one hand to count to six, he went, even Fezzik went, hang on. <laughs> hang on a second. And this begins Fezzik's 12-step program to get an ego off of the booze, which basically consists of feeding him soup and dunking his head underneath water. And then and then an ego's as right as rain, which is great. I also think in that scene, um, Andre get a little bit carried away. Dunking him under the water because he, he gets really offended. He might have been, yeah. <laughs> and that, doesn't, that doesn't look like acting to me. That was like, come on. Well, like... Mandy, Bat- <laughs> Mandy Batankin actually calls this role the most fun he's had in his entire career. Oh, fantastic. And definitely, please, someone remind me when we get to the end. That's something I want to say about Mandy Patankin again. Maybe when we get down to the big fight scene at the end, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. We have a scene where Buttercup confronts Humperdinck and says, basically, I'll never marry you no matter what happens, no matter what your promise is. Because earlier, Humperdinck's promise had his four fastest ships in search of Wesley. That's, of course, a lie. She discovers that and says she'll never marry him. Um, so Humperdinck goes in a rage downstairs, the pit of despair, and turns it up to 50 and sucks 50 years out of Wesley's life, and Wesley dies. Very good, well. Q Fezzik and Anigo, a couple hours later, they're looking for the man in black. They hear his screams of agony, determined he's got to be in the city because that's the sound of ultimate suffering. Anigo somehow knows that um, the man in black, his love Mary, is marrying another that night. How he knows that? Don't really know. But he, but he knows that. Uh, and so... How does he know that scream as well? Yeah, it was... Well, he said it's the it's, it's scream his heart made when his father was killed before him. Oh. So he said he recognized it because of that. He finds the um, albino, Mel Smith, and 
he, he says he doesn't know where anything is. Fezzik's asked to jog his memory. Fezzik just knocks him out. <laughs> and so in the one shot, I will say, is a beautiful shot. An ego prays to his father. And the light is behind him, beautiful and golden. It's a low shot. And he gets up and says, Father, direct my sword. And the sword hits the tree. Of course, by accident, he leans on the trick stump and they gained access. And they find the man in black, Wesley, dead. And then we find out, how much money do you have, Fezzik? We need to get a miracle. And then we cut to Miracle Max. Which is amazing. Again, Billy Crystal. He was only on set for three days. Really? Yeah. And what they did with most people is um, Rob Reiner... Uh, they all kind of stayed in like one area and Rob Reiner every evening, the director would have people over and they would eat hot dogs and hamburgers and chill out and drink beers and just get a real family sort of feel to it all. Well, Billy Crystal and Carol Kane don't need to do that. They're only be there for three days. So as a result, um, Carol Kane invites Billy Crystal out to her place in LA and they kind of spend a couple of days figuring out their character's backstory because Rob Reiner basically said, here's the outline. But outside of that, Go nuts. Do whatever you want. Can I just ask one thing? Um, was When Harry Met Sally before or after this? That's a great question. I want to think When Harry Met Sally is 1988 or 89. I could be wrong because on that. Rob Reiner was in When Harry Met Sally. Was he? Or he directed it or something like that. Rob Reiner's he was... also in, um, uh, oh, what's that film of Tom Hanks and the little boy, While You Were Sleeping. Not While You Were Sleeping. Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, Harry Potter Sally in 1989. Hey, I was right. Yeah, yeah, because maybe this because I linked the two, and I thought reason Billy Crystal was in it was because of when Harry met Sally. I would argue the other way around. Yeah, the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and also the woman was that her out of uh, oh the one with the the voice out of um, Scrooge. Scrooge. That is her. Yeah, Carol King, who's also in the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. I knew that. She's she plays the woman, Lillian. In, yeah, she's in Lillian, Kimmy the woman Smith. who like rents Kimmy the apartment. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay, yeah, that I makes reckon, a lot of sense now. I kind of, I didn't make the connection of who it actually was, but as soon as she opened her mouth in Princess Bride, I was like, I know this woman. Who was she? Yeah, same. I think those two though um, are the best addition to a film that you could ever have with thirty minutes to go. They shot like, for. If th- you've got to put anything in. That is who you should put into a film. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really liked these characters. They shot for three days, and they say Billy Crystal did not do the same joke twice. He <laughs> well. just ad libbed. The worst part was that like eighty percent of it you couldn't use because it's a family sort of <laughs> film. So there's things I'd like so well, apparently one of them is. You know, I, uh, we've we've had a hard day. Oh, hard day. You think you've had a hard day? Yesterday, I found my nephew with a goat. <laughs> <laughs> Wow! You can use that. But um, I really liked his very tame little joke when he's at the door. When he says, um, "Why would you bring up such a painful memory? Why don't you just give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice on it while you're at it?" That was an ad lib. It was supposed to stop with Humperdinck. <laughs> I hate him. He fired me, and that was supposed to be the end of it. And he ad libbed the bit about thank you for bringing up a painful oh, memory. It's brilliant. Um, and so um, it was so he was so funny that actually Rob Reiner had to leave the set because <laughs> they caught him laughing too much and it was ruining takes. And then 
also, Mandy Batankin said he had the hardest job of anyone because his job was just to set him up with the lines and then not <laughs> laugh. And so he said the only injury he sustained on a princess bride, the princess bride, is he bruised a rib from stifling or cracked a rib from stifling his laughter. Oh at my Billy Crystal. God. He was he was it was that hard to not break. And so yeah. And I, I don't think you can overlook Carol Kane, who just when you might be getting a little bit used to Miracle Max, she comes out with a whole whole liar, liar, and they play off each other so well. Yeah, witch. I'm your wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought she was brilliant. And I think this is the kind of humor that normally in a film I find it really over the top and I don't really appreciate it. But for some reason in this one, I just really enjoyed it. I and think because it was a short film. scene. It's just such a good short scene. And they they find out he's just mostly dead. What he wants is true love. They give him a chocolate-covered miracle pill, which will just, you know, it's a deus ex machina, but it's, it's going to get you out of this situation. And they send them off with one of the greatest lines, have fun storming the castle. <laughs> also, the bit I liked was the bellows. Yes. <laughs> he yeah. did a mouth-to-mouth. <laughs> he put the bellows in him. That's funny. Okay. You think it'll work? It'll take a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, so Wesley starts to come to. They're sort of sitting on the backdrop of. They're on this like turret or bridge or something overlooking the gate where all the men are. And they're like, well, here's how we can hopefully try and take down the castle. And apparently at this point, Andre the Giant let out the biggest, dirtiest, stinkiest fart. <laughs> <laughs> and he said the first thing you did was you heard it then you smelled it and then you saw steam coming off of Andre's head because he was so hot underneath this hairpiece they made him wear and it, like, it took him like 30 takes to get this down because they just could not get it out of their system <laughs> and so um, eventually they get into the cat they've come up with a plan there's a, something called a holocaust cloak which Pheasant just happens to have on them they have a wheelbarrow they intimidate their way in Basically, they make it so scary that everybody has to leave and leaves poor Wellen to sort of sit there by himself. He tries, but he doesn't have the gate key. So Nico says, give us the gate key. What gate key? I don't have the gate key. And Nico says, Fezzik, tear his arms off. All of a sudden, oh, you mean this gate key? <laughs> Which, I really liked that guy in a very small role. I liked yeah. the guy who played Wellen. I thought he was very good. Yeah, I liked him too. I think I liked all the like little parts. I think everything's well done. Um we cross-cut this with um, – there's the wedding that started to take place between Humperdink and uh, and Buttercup. Um, and they just rush through the marriage and says, just skip to the end, say I do. And man and wife, man and wife, they don't say I do. This priest was so oh. annoying. I'd forgotten how funny his voice was. I'd forgotten how good it was. It's Can running. I just say the priest, one of my heroes – Peter Cook is one of the most wittiest guys ever. Brilliant. Him and Dudley Moore together were brilliant. But again, to see Peter Cook in this movie, I was like, oh my God. Such a small part. But yes, the voice was annoying. There are people who get married, apparently, and they get married and the bride dresses like Buttercup, which isn't that hard. It's just, you know, put on a, a nice white dress. Blue, gr- I think, actually. But- when she gets married, is it blue? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, they're both in blue. Well, turquoisey blue. When yeah. she, the, like the, the groom will dress up like the, like Wesley, 
and then they will get a, a, a minister and they will insist that he does the 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 lisp and go marriage <laughs> <laughs> and this is how they will get married and i'm just going well that's kind of fun and i've seen i've seen sillier things no i've seen yeah. sillier things no, 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 no. i think it's hilarious right. i think it's hilarious um and so um they bring, so at this point now, we sort of split into two or three groups. And the first thing we do is we find, as they're dragging Wesley along, in comes Rugen and his army of goons. They see Inigo. They storm Inigo. Inigo kills four of them, and it's a face-to-face. And we've been waiting all movie for this face-to-face between Inigo Montoya and Count Rugen. And Inigo says the line that he was been building up to this whole film. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father prepare to die and rogan gives it a beat and he turns around and runs away (laughs) (laughs) which i think i think it's so good thank you and then we cut to um buttercup who's being walked back to her room by the king and the king is a great little role as well i don't he doesn't get much but even i meant to say it right at the beginning of the podcast even right at the start um there's a bit where Humperdinck is in, introducing Buttercup for the first time. The king is in the background, just kind of going, oh. <laughs> like not paying attention at all. It is really, really funny, and I think it's really well done. And you can totally buy in, but this is the, the, the sort of scenario that would let a corrupt son sort of rise and cause all these problems. So. Absolutely, because then when you get this payoff at the end, when he just goes, she kissed me, well, and like is completely ignored everything else that... Um, that she's just said to him. Yeah, which he, is. Like, because we see him doing this, like wobbling his head around and not really paying any attention at the beginning. It's a really lovely little payoff for it. Right. And so the, she, he walks her back to the two to her honeymoon suite. And then just before she gives him a kiss on the cheek and he goes, what was that for? And she goes, well, because I'll be, you've always been very kind to me. And that's nice. And I'll be killing myself in a few minutes. <laughs> and he completely no sells the kid. Oh, she kissed me. <laughs> just walks off. <laughs> and that's his part for the film. For, for what he did. Great little moment. And then we go back to Inigo and Rugen. Rugen has got a dagger out. And as soon as Inigo comes around a corner, he throws it in his chest. Realizes, you're the little brat I taught a lesson to. Stabs him in... Uh, oh, he's, he's slumps down and Inigo, we think, dies. And then we have that same sort of sound effect we have with Miracle Max. And the pill. And he gets up. And he does the whole... My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He says, so he tries to stab him in the arm, and he does. And then again, the other arm, and he does. But he keeps getting up. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And he does it a third time. He's going to go, Hello, you killed my father. Prepare to die. At which point, Christopher Guest playing Rukin goes, Stop saying that. <laughs> and now he's like, he's got all the cheat codes on, and he can feel no pain. And he takes him out, and he stabs him once in the arm. The other arm flicks him on the cheeks just like he did, and then finally sta- and he goes, "Promise me money, or anything. Promise me your riches, all that I have and more. Offer me anything." He said, "Whatever you want," and he stabs him in the stomach and says, "I want my father back, you son of a bitch." <laughs> Interesting fact: couple things. Number one, uh, Count Rugen has the same wounds now that Inigo Montoya has: a slit on both cheeks a cut on both arms, and a fatal wound to the stomach. Yeah. Secondly, Mandy Patankin apparently was offered any role he wanted in this film. He chose Inigo Montoya, and he felt his own father sorry, had died of cancer. 
And so he decided to imagine that Count Rugen, that character, is the personification of that cancer. Wow. <laughs> and that by killing Count Rugen, he is, he is avenging his own father's death. Wow. So much so that Christopher Guest, the guy who played Rugen, said to the other people in the stunt team, he went, look, I know you've trained me to sword fight. But this guy's really going to come at me and try and kill me. Because <laughs> there's a talk. He goes, I'm just going to defend myself, is what he decided. <laughs> because he knew what Patankin was drawing from on this. <laughs> so that was the, kind of the story I referenced earlier, but I wanted to, to sort of come back to. Back to Buttercup. She's laying. Uh, so she's not laying. She gets her little knife out. She goes to stab herself in the chest, and she's interrupted by Wesley, who says there's a shortage of perfect breasts in the world. It'd be a shame to do harm to yours. We find out he's alive. They they have a little hug, a little cuddle, and then in comes Humperdink. Uh, Humperdink um, thinks that Wesley can't get up. He thinks he might be wounded. Wesley intimidates him and says. No, we're not going to duel to the death, which is what Humperdinck wants, and a duel to the pain, which means we cut off your feet, we cut off your hands, we stab out your eyes, we cut out your tongue, but we leave your ears. So you can hear every child who screams, oh, dear God, what is that? And then he stands up, points his blade at the camera and says, drop your sword. We find out he's a coward, drops his sword, ties him up. Um, in comes an ego, says, where's Fezzik? Fezzik's downstairs with four horses. They all jump off uh, uh, out of the window onto the horses. There's this really fake-looking shot, of course, of uh, Robin Wright as she floats through the air. Had to be like that because she was dropped on wires because Andre, remember, can't catch anything. He's got no ability to catch anything. <laughs> so it's all really, really nice. They get on the horses and ride off, and the poor guy who's being Fezzik's stuntman is clearly about a foot and a half shorter than the real Fezzik. If you go look at that, like Fezzik's the same size as everybody else once they get on the horses. <laughs> Rumor has it the horse kind of looked at Andre and went, not happening. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so they got a stuntman to do it. Let um, me find out everybody else leaves, and they go ahead, and it's time for the final kiss between and apparently there are five kisses that were rated the most perfect since time began but this one left them all in the dust but grandpa wasn't going to read that but the grandson says he doesn't mind the kissing anymore and there's that and that is the last shot that carrie elwes does in the princess bride and he and robin wright were apparently quite smitten with each other and they both kept kept insisting for extra takes and they're like i think we're good <laughs> no no i want, I want to never go with that and then she would go i want to never go with that after about six of them, Rob Reiner came up to him and said, I think we got it, guys. <laughs> you can tell by the look in her eyes. Yeah, you can tell they're both into each other. Yeah. 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 They're, they're both very pretty human beings. Yeah. I think yeah. so. Anyway. Very much like, so. Uh, ladies, is Carrie always a, a beautiful human being? Yes. I would think so. But must be, yeah? He's gorgeous, He's not yeah. my type. Okay. But yes, he's a beautiful human being. And she's all right. She's all right. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah, yeah she's very pretty. She's really I liked pretty. her. Like, I liked her better when she was the farm girl, personally. But you know, plainly pretty, pretty yes. and that's she's, something you don't see very often. No, pretty without nice, pretty without the makeup, and yeah, it's really quite quite nice. She's still stunning now as well. And so then we find, yeah, because of course Robin Wright is Claire Underwood on House of Cards. Anybody who's seen House of Cards on Netflix, this is where she got her start, really. And then that's more or less our film. Uh, the grandson says to the grandfather, will you please come back and read it to me tomorrow? And we get left with the line, as you wish. 
Yeah. So, Liam, I got a question for you, because you know I like my alternative film theories, don't you? Yeah. We never meet Grandma, do we? No. What if this is Grandpa's version, a fantasy retelling of his own love story with Grandma? Oh. And what if As You Wish is the subtle nod that he is Wesley? Not that any of this happened. Maybe there's another guy. Maybe there's some other stuff. Maybe it's a fantastical version of him telling the love story of Grandma and Grandpa. A bit like The Notebook. A little bit, yeah. Now, granted, yeah. i got to get around the fact that there's a book that he's reading from, in my theory. I yeah. do. <laughs> but I think it's a touching little moment. And I don't know if you knew, if you take a look and go back to it, in that shot, the wallpaper is different than the rest of the film. And that's because that shot was done. It's the only shot in the whole film to happen in America. They called Peter Falk back to do that shot. Because originally, the little boy is supposed to put the book away, and he hears a noise outside, and it's the four heroes on their white horses inviting the grandson to come with them on their journey. And I'm like, I am so glad you changed that ending, because that sucks. Because yeah. the two worlds should not meet. Nope. And that is our film. So, general thoughts? What do we think of The Princess Bride? I'm very curious about our newbies. What do you think about The Princess Bride? Let's start with Ellie. I'm really sorry, but I did not like this film. Like Hashtag Ellie is very wrong. <laughs> go, go ahead, though. It's absolutely okay to disagree, but go ahead. I mean, maybe, like, obviously, we talked last week about the fact that it's got quite a lot of nostalgia for you. Um, but I mean, I, I feel like Liam probably quite enjoyed it as well. So that probably kind of cancels out my argument here, but, um, it's just not my kind of humor. Um, there were some parts of it that I found really intensely annoying. And apparently it's the bits that are George's favorite bits of the film, but I was like wanting to turn the TV off. Like I absolutely hated so a this couple is of the bits of this. Or? Yeah. The, the rats and the priest absolutely could not stand them to wanted fair, to like I, tear I my eyes i don't find out. the priest endearing either to be fair um and it just it's but it's that kind of thing where like it's put in there because it's supposed to be funny and i've just written down in my notes this priest is really annoying why does anyone think this is funny and i just didn't get it um see now i i like peter hook, peter cook so yeah for I, me I won't really listen to what he was saying. I was just going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I don't know who he is. And um, I have, apart from the fact that um, the old lady, whatever her name is, is uh, Lillian and Kimmy Schmidt and that um, Buttercup is Claire Underwood. Um, I don't really have any kind of knowledge of these. Oh, and the um, Anne Vizzini in clueless as well i don't have any knowledge of these actors in other roles and certainly not in other film roles or significant ones really so Mm. i can't really draw the parallels perhaps that we normally would do um but yeah i mean there were moments of warmth and there were there were moments where i laughed don't get me wrong i didn't like completely hate the film but it's certainly not the best film ever in my eyes okay liam your thoughts buddy um it's not the best film ever but, and I have no nostalgia to this film, but I really loved it. Yeah. I loved the, the heart that was in it. I loved the humour that was in it. I loved all the cameos that were in it. And because that was such a joy to me that I had no uh, conception of what this film was about, I had no idea who was in it. 
I had no idea who the lead roles were. So I was going in at completely blind. So every time we came up to like Billy Crystal, um, Peter Cook, uh, Mel Smith, all these people, I'm just like, oh my God, how many more are going to keep cropping up? Yeah. That has small roles. Fred Savage at the beginning, obviously from our generation. Um, so that was nice to know that Fred Savage was in it. Uh, and Peter Falk, I mean, one of my favourite detectives as Columbo. And, you know, and there was some really, really lovely, my, my, my favourite loveliest moment was the sword fight when he um, helped him up the cliff. He weren't going to, but he helped him up. And then he said, no, take your time. And a nice little duel. Um, I love that. That's my favourite scene. Excellent. But yeah, you're right about um, Peter Cook being annoying with the voice. That is true. Um, but I was just having a, you know, a screaming 15-year-old girl who just seen the Beatles moment with Peter <laughs> Cook. So that, that kind of washed over me. Um, so, yeah. But no, I, I really enjoyed the movie and I'd so watch it again. Um, I'd like to be able to watch it and see it with different eyes rather than the fresh eyes I've just seen it with. Yeah, it's interesting. On that note, that feels like a good way to segue to Georgia, who picked the film. So, Georgia, um, haven't seen this for, I don't know, how many times it's been now, but um, did it hold up? Was it everything you remembered it to be? It absolutely was. I think it was that and more. See, I have a little bit of nostalgia with it, but not massively. I watched it for the first time about four years ago, um, and I've, like I've said, I've read the book since. I think this film is absolutely full of heart and warmth and just makes you feel like you're being cuddled up by a lovely warm fuzzy blanket the whole way through and you couldn't possibly want to stop watching at least is um my opinion i don't have what liam has i don't recognize the actors from anything else so again that kind of against um other bits and pieces so i don't have that i did not recognize any of them from anything and even when you were saying who they were now, that was a surprise to me. Um, so I don't even have that kind of connection to it. I just think it's such a wonderful, simple story. It's full of love. I think the critics are right. It's one of the best love stories ever told. Um, it's so lovely. The humour throughout it is witty. It's sarcastic. It's dry. But it's very simple in places as well. I don't think it takes too much to a lot of what is being said. Um Wesley's dialogue throughout is absolutely incredible and it's delivered really well. Um, uh, the only really gripe I have with it is some of Buttercup's stuff, but I know she's supposed to be like that. Um, so, again, that doesn't bother me to any extent whatsoever. I think it's an absolutely incredible film, an incredible story, written brilliantly, it's filmed brilliantly. I think the little bits like the rats, like the eels, like... Um, the cliff looking a bit spongy at points actually <laughs> add to the whole charm of the film. It makes it what it is. Um, if you did this again, if you made a remake of this and did it all CGI and did it all green screened and perfect, it would lose about 70% of what makes this film this. It's interesting you bring that up because in research, um, I rereading Carrie was book, he said that... Uh, well, to paraphrase, he said, there's a shortage of perfect films in this world. It would be a shame to lose or to do something to this one. And so at the start, we uh, when we I was doing my segue, it was a little bit of something, but it was me going like, this is like catching up with an old friend. And for me, it is like, I, although I recognize the actors now, 
it's this was my introduction to many of these. Fred Savage would have probably been the only one I knew. And so years later, when I would see Peter Falk, I would go, oh, I know him from The Princess Bride. Funny story, really quickly. Peter Falk insisted he be aged up at first because he felt he looked too young to play the grandfather. <laughs> and so they shot the whole thing. And like no one had the heart to tell him at the time, no, 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 you probably look okay. And so they had to come back and shoot the whole thing again <laughs> with the makeup off. They might have grayed his, like, his hair up or his mustache or his beard up. But a little bit of a uh, little bit of vanity, maybe from from Peter Falk and thinking <laughs> he was too old. But as I would run into these people later on in life, you know, I would see Mandy Patankin and things like Criminal Minds and go, "Oh, I know him from this," and so on with Carrie Elwes, who I would you'd see briefly in other things, and he has been a bit of a resurgence lately. But Carrie Elwes is in Days of Thunder. Carrie Elwes is in Robin Hood uh, Men in Tights. It is very good in Robin Hood Men in Tights because he's a perfect Robin Hood lookalike. And so, oh, it's good. It wouldn't qualify for this, but 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 it's very good. It's 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 a different kind of like Mel Brooksy kind of humor, right? Yeah. And so there's that. I just I like going back and watching this. Yes, it's nostalgia. It makes me feel like I'm X years old again. But there's very few films that can make you feel this way. I said I had the pleasure of uh, being asked to adjudicate some sort of a uh, drama festival last year. And I remember saying at one point, the hardest thing to to accomplish on stage and really any medium is warmth and heart because it's so hard to make it seem authentic and not to make it seem cynical or jaded or these things. And there's very few films that can do that. And I think this one does it in spades. I think this one still holds up. Uh, William Goldman was asked to write a... He asked his daughters, which are my next book about, and one of them said a princess and the other one said a bride. And so we got the Princess Bride, and it's just a. In in regards to the podcast I was talking about earlier, uh, Quantum Week, and they're they're talking about the anti comedy bias, I think there's absolutely something for a film that makes you walk out feeling happy with the world and going, my soul feels joy at what I've seen. And it's definitely a feel good movie. Yeah. And so. You know, usually we'd put it in line with some of the films we've looked at over the last, you know, um, what, six other films we've seen so far on the podcast. And you yeah. go, maybe this doesn't feel like it belongs. I'm saying, I don't know why. It's it's 97%, 8.1. I mean, these don't just happen. And I yeah. think uh, you're allowed to disagree. It's totally, totally fine. But I think there's nothing wrong with a feel-good movie. Uh, being compared to those other films. I think it's just as much hard work to make people feel authentic joy as it is to make them feel disturbed by the Joker or to make them feel uh, heartbroken at Theory of Everything. And if it does it well, then I think it deserves to be applauded as such. Uh, Kind of reached that time. Let's go around the table, uh, shall we? A favorite character. I asked Alexa earlier. Her favorite character was Inigo Montoya. Uh, maybe let's see what everybody else felt. Uh, Ellie. Um, I would agree with Alexa. Yeah. Um, I think he is, uh, one of the characters that I did get a little bit of warmth from. Um, I think I did also like the, the grandson as well. Um, with his little quips about the kissing and stuff to his grandfather. I found that quite endearing. Um, but yeah, I think Inigo is probably my favorite character. It's really difficult because I love so much of it. Um, 
I love Inigo Montoya. I think he's brilliant. I think his character arc is brilliant. I think his um, interactions with everyone he has are absolutely incredible, especially his relationship with Physic. I think that's incredible. But I think I've referenced it quite a few times throughout this. Wesley and his dialogue throughout just make me smile so much. I think there's a line when he's intimidating um, Prince Humperdinck and he's asking what's going on and his answer is, I'll explain and I'll use small words so you'll understand, you warthog-faced <laughs> buffoon, which is just wonderful. It's so wonderful. It's it's unnecessary, but that's what makes it so perfectly brilliant and it's done so, so, so well. Um, so I think I'm going to have to go with him purely for the dialogue that he has and, and the way it's delivered. And I think it's worth noting that the Writers Guild of America holds it as one of the 100 best screenplays ever written. Not comedy screenplays, yeah. but screenplays. And the Writers Guild, as, as it says in the tin, these are the writers themselves who are lifting yeah. this up as going, this is brilliantly written. So, yeah, 100% props on that one. Uh, mm-hmm. Fully agree. Liam? My favorite character was Billy Crystal as the Magical Maxwell, what was his name? Miracle Max. Max. Miracle, Miracle Max. Max. Uh, he was my favourite, because straight away, I was just hooked with him. I want, to, I want him to hang around a bit longer. I want to see more of him. I'd hope he was going to pop up again somewhere else, but he didn't. Um, obviously, there's characters in there, obviously, that I enjoy as actors themselves. I didn't enjoy their performance, like okay. Peter Cook. Um, as much as I loved seeing Peter Cook in it, I didn't enjoy his performance. Um, yeah, but I'd say Billy Crystal. Yeah. Ask myself. I, I want to give an honorable mention to Chris Sarandon because I felt that uh, in order to have a love story you really care about, you have to have a baddie that you really want to root against, and Chris Sarandon's one of them. And when he's asked to swear on his life or something like that, he says, you won't break your word. He says, may I live a thousand years and never hunt a day. Like, like, like that'd be a punishment. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so honorable mention to him, but I'm going to go with Inigo Montoya. I, I, when I was a kid, he was my favorite character. He still is my favorite character. Uh, I think his, um, I think his motivations and his arc is clear. And when he finally gets redemption, we don't mention he gets to be the new Dread Pirate Roberts, which I think is a natural ending point. We do kind of gloss yeah. over the piracy element of the idea that, you know, these guys are going to be thieves and murderers, but we'll just sort of, <laughs> yeah. gloss, we'll just sort of gloss over that in our heroes here. Uh, best bit, maybe the best bit. Ellie? Um, I liked the bit with Inigo and... Uh, Wesley or Dread Pirate Roberts, whatever you want to call him, um, on the cliffs. The greatest sword fight ever. Yeah. Yes. That bit. Um, I thought that was, again, that was, that was one of the scenes that I did get um, quite a lot of warmth from. Um, or as I mentioned as well, the, the scenes with the, the boy and his grandfather as well. I thought they were really cute. Okay. Georgia? Uh, my favourite bit in the film is Wesley learning to walk again once okay. he's recovering <laughs> from his miracle pill. Because the acting in that, yeah. the physical acting, is absolutely incredible. We were talking about it um, last week with Eddie Redmayne um, portraying how um, Stephen Hawking's like decline in health and how difficult that must have been to do. And obviously it's a different thing because this is a serious film versus a um, comedy. But the acting involved is quite similar, actually. And I would argue that it is done better in <laughs> in The Princess Bride 
he's like but it, i mean it's played for fun and everything like that but his head flopping back and thingy just picking it back up and that kind of thing is it's just little bits of it that are brilliant and even when he's not being spoken to in those scenes you can still see him like wobbling over as if he's like the scarecrow in wizard of oz and i think it's brilliant i think it's really really funny yep liam i already mentioned it earlier and ellie picked up on this as well just a minute ago but that's my favorite scene on the cliff I'm going to kind of echo yours, but I want to give a small bit of attention to there's this great fake out scene when the story's being read that Buttercup has been emerging as Queen Buttercup. And this li- and this old woman goes like, boo, the queen of muck, boo, the queen of slime. And it's kind of like this little like Monty Python. I wrote that down in my notes as well. It's yeah. very Monty Python. And I thought that woman, that's all she did. That was her whole role for the film. And I thought she nailed it. So not only my favorite character, but maybe my favorite bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I can see that. Yeah, uh, let's do this one though. Favorite quote because we do talk about photo quotables. This is a film that's full of favorite quotes. <laughs> For the record, I asked Alexa, and Alexa's was, "My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die." Anybody else got one they want to throw out there? Truly, you do have a dizzying intellect. Is quite funny. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, the clip scene. I mean, we've mentioned the clip scene several times, but before he actually helps him up, um, Inigo says to uh, the man in black, he says, I'm only waiting at the top to kill you. And Wesley's response is, well, that does put a dampener on our relationship. Yes, Which, again, it's just so good. Yeah. It's so, so well written and delivered. I love it to pieces. I mean, some people would say inconceivable. Uh, mine might be life is pain. Anything that tells you otherwise is selling you something. Um as you wish. I mean, the film is imminently quotable. And as someone who's seen Ghostbusters and seen Princess Bride, I will slay down the gauntlet and say, I think Princess Bride is more quotable than Ghostbusters. That's just me champion my 80s movie over someone else's. But I'm doing that. It's a bit hard for me being the first time I've seen it. You yeah. don't have the benefit of it growing over you. Yeah. You don't really know which yeah. quotes are memorable because you don't know. When they're coming up or how often they're going to come up and stuff. And and there is that. There is the idea about what happens when you watch something for the first time. We talked about this with Joker, I think, because it was your second time watching Joker, my second time watching Joker, and I think Liam's. I think it was most people's second time watching Joker at that point, not George's. And then it's it's a different way in which you watch a film the second time versus the first time. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Any bits you'd go worse bit? And we talked a little bit about some of the – I mean, Ellie, you seem to have some – Things you didn't like about the film? Yeah, I think I've been fairly clear about what my worst bits of the film were. Um, I mean, in terms of characters, apart from obviously the priest, um, I didn't like Vizzini as a character. I I found him really annoying. Even though you were supposed to? Well, yeah, I I guess that's maybe what the film wanted me to think but you're supposed to like two of them and not like not, not like one of them so when he dies yeah we're we're, we're actually okay yeah with i it. was i was quite glad that he was because when Vizzini dies <laughs> like 60 seconds later you don't remember him at all yeah like you're not hung up thinking about the impact of that because really he's just he's just a plot device yeah. i suppose for me because like i said he was that inconceivable was the one quote that i was already familiar with i perhaps expected him to have a bigger role in the film so when he yeah. was annoying me near the start i was thinking i'm gonna have to put up with this guy for the entire film but actually he's not in it really for that yeah. long georgia um the only bit i don't like in the film is when they're rolling down that hill <laughs> Um, I think it just it just crosses the line of um, like 
warmth and nostalgia and uh, cutesy into that kind of, oh, that's a bit awkward now. Um, Only very briefly, it's literally about a 15-second clip, um, but I think it's just done so... uh, Obviously, it was done on a budget. It's just two stunt people rolling down a hill, and you kind of go, oh, it's a bit disjointing from the rest of the film, um, is my only complaint with that. I don't mind Wesley falling down the hill. It's when she joins in and mimics it. You kind of have to go, is this <laughs> funny? Or, hammy, or is this just hammy? Yeah. Liam, anybody that didn't really drive yeah. you? Yeah, I didn't like the killing of the rat. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. You know, when if you watch him, he, he stabs him twice. Yes, he does. And, and you're like, there's no need to do it twice. <laughs> I know the listeners I, can't I, I, see I, I, the video, but the pain in Liam's, Liam's face, face right now. Like pain. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like it because it kind of just rolled over. I didn't, don't like seeing things killed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that jarred me. I didn't like that. I'm going to go with... I wasn't a big Buttercup fan for portions of it. Despite that, I think she does a really good job, which sounds like it's almost whatever. She has to be the straight man for lack of a better word so that all the wacky characters can be around her but because of that you kind of forget like no one's naming buttercup as their favorite character ever no buttercup's job is to stand there and look pretty and be a victim and that's fine because there's a lot of fairy tales where it's about rescuing the princess and i can live with that and it's the 1980 87 and it's the high those are all fine things for me but as far as like you know why is everybody so gaga about this girl it's the fact that she's pretty and yeah. all the actors would mention how funny she was in real life. And it just would have been nice if we could have found some more moments of that. But, but, but her role wasn't to be funny. And so I'm kind of talking myself in circles here. I'm just saying that in, in a film full of extraordinary performances, um, hers flew under the radar the most. And maybe I don't appreciate the most because of that. Yeah. I think, I think for the part that she plays, she does it excellently. Her name's Robin, yeah. isn't it? But, but, if, but if I'm listing my top 10 characters, she well. does no, no, no. I'm not arguing yeah. that it's a good character. I'm arguing that the character is done well. And is necessary. Um, and it is. Like, yeah. Not supposed to be a good character. Yeah. She's not supposed to necessarily be someone you care too much about. And also it's kind of explained away in the uh, in the opening that she she says herself she died that day. So for the rest of the film, she's not going to be the person she is right at the beginning because she said herself she's not coming back from that. Right, you, you do get a little glimpse of her personality again when they're in the fire fire swamp you get little bits of that coming back when she finds out she's with wesley again um but then she's back with humperdinck so it goes away yeah um, it's what i was gonna say like for nine out of the 97 minute runtime she's with wesley for like what four minutes yeah so yeah we do see her kind of mourning or waiting or something yeah, yeah good show um so that just leaves us with our rankings so let's ask and our the ages oh, oh ages let's play the age game quickly <laughs> let's play the age game so uh, some of them I do know, some of them I don't know. So Ellie's going to go ahead and do this one. If uh, we'll just go around the table quickly, I'll we'll do me, Georgia, Liam for all of them. Okay. Okay. So, so this is the age that the that the actors were when they played the role. So uh, Wesley. Uh, I think I know this one, so I'm going to sit it out. I'm going to go twenty-eight. I'm going to go twenty-five. Very close. He's twenty-four. And celebrated oh. his birthday on the set, actually. Oh. They, they, they called him back and sang happy birthday to him. Uh, but, and, they, and they surprised him with it. So that's a nice little story. I hope it's not the day that he broke his toe. 
That would be unfortunate. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. That wouldn't <laughs> surprise me, though, to be fair. <laughs> um, Buttercup. I know this one, too. 21? Yeah, 2021. 20, yep. Yeah. Younger. Yeah, 21. Inigo. Yeah. Oh, Inigo Montoya. I do know this one, so I've got to sit this one out as well. Inigo Montoya. Older. Um, 31. Um, I don't know. It's hard to gauge that one. 34. He's 34. <laughs> Apparently, it's very easy to gauge that one. (laughs) Spot on. Um, Fezzik? Oh, I don't know this one, so I can jump in on this one. Okay. Fezzik, I'm going to guess 38. I say he's had a well established wrestling career before this film, and that takes a few years. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to go 36. Liam? 40. 41. Ooh, 41. He's, he is right at the end. He's months away from his big WrestleMania sort of like final matches, yeah. Uh, yeah. My goodness, he did, he did a, he was quite old during his wrestling career then. Uh, this is the end of it, but yeah. Vizzini? I, oh, I do know this one. Wallace Shawn, Vizzini. Uh, he's, I would probably bet him as the oldest. I'm going to go 43. I'm going to go older. I'm going to say... 47. I want to say he was 45. He was 43. Oh, 43. There we go. So George has got it spot on again. Very good at this game. You're very good at this game. Um, Only in this film, though, apparently. (laughs) So some some fun ones then. Uh, Miracle Max. I know this one, so I can't. At least I think I do. So, Georgia. I don't know how much of that is makeup that he's wearing. Um, 57. (laughs) 36. The fun story is he brought pictures of his grandmother in for the makeup artist or two for his <laughs> I believe he's 39 is what I want to say. He is, yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. And they did a good job with the makeup then because I yeah. didn't yeah. tell. It's really good, isn't it? And Valerie? This so one I don't his know. His wife? This one I don't know, but knowing her career as it sits, I want to go 32. I don't think she can be more than more than early 60s now which would put her I don't know I'm going to go 29 I've seen seen what they can do with the makeup (laughs) I'm going to say 35 34 isn't it amazing that those characters are so young when they do these roles playing such old characters Um, you'd have thought they might have naturally gone for Actors that were a little bit older, really, yeah. rather than having to do so much work with the prosthetics and stuff. Yeah. Any others? Um, I've got others if you want them. Uh, what's if Fred you? If, if, oh, Fred Savage. I don't know this one. So that'd be Wait, kind of fun. Sorry, the grandson. Oh, Liam, why don't you start us off? I'm going to say eight. Georgia. Uh oh, it's hard to age boys because they age differently than other people. Um. Well, half the people. <laughs> no, I mean, like, boys in that age group, like, 7 to 14, yeah. can look exactly the same or completely different. Um, so you could be an old 7 or a young 11. Uh, going to go in the middle, 9. I'm going to go for a middle-of-the-road 10. It's 10, yeah. yeah. And just because you mentioned it earlier, what about the grandfather? Peter yeah. Falk. Yeah. I know this, I think, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off. 54. Well, he 
because he thinks he's not old enough to play a grandfather, so he can't be much older than that. Yeah, 56? I want to say 61. 60. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, rankings, it's time for that. So, uh, Ellie, let's start off on the low number, I'm guessing. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you gave Princess Bride, and so um, I can react and go, you are wrong. I mean... I've I have already brought it down a little bit from what I initially put and I don't know whether actually it's dropping further or whether it ought to go up a little bit or whether it's sat right but um at the moment I'm sitting on a six okay six out of ten it's fine it's higher than I thought you were gonna give it uh, from, from your conversations that's all right uh Georgia as our other perma guest what did you and the person who brought the film to our attention what what, what would you give it um a solid nine Wow, almost a perfect score. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Any anything you want to say in defense of it, or is it just nine point seven five dropping the mic? Um yeah, pretty much. I think I've said what I need to say. It is I, I was saying to Liam uh, when we were having a bit of a technical break, it may not be a perfect film. Um I believe that's part of its charm and why it is my perfect film. Mic drop. Oh. I do like that. Well done. <laughs> Liam. A solid eight. Solid eight? Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go nine myself. Um, the charm sits sits high. Um, it is it is an old friend. It is it is perfect. It might not be a perfect film, but it's, it, it's very close to perfect storytelling. And sometimes you don't need to make a perfect film to tell the story in the perfect fashion. It's this story told as perfectly as you could do it. Name me one person who was not perfectly cast in this film. In that regard, name me one performance that isn't perfect from the people who are in this film in that role. Whether it's the Albino, whether it's Rogan, whether it's uh, Humperdinck, Fezzik, Vizzini, despite the fact he thought he was getting it wrong. Well, I think everybody just nails it. And I think the warmth and the heart, you can't fake that. No. And I think just from a just from another point of view, there's a lot of books that have always been turned into films. And some people will argue that the books are always better. Um, this still rings true for that. The book is a better story. And despite them being slightly different stories told in slightly different ways, this film does not damage the book in any way. It gives a different light on it. It puts a different string to it. But what it does is open up the book to a wider audience as well, um, which I think is something that's really important. And it does the book justice. You can read the book and be a massive fan of the book and watch the film and go, you know, that's done well. So, And the characters translate well, um, which I think is really important and a mark of a good film. Okay. So next week we have our friend Debbie joining us, which we're excited about. Very excited. Good. Yes, he's very excited. Debbie has chosen a film, and we don't. Only Georgia knows what that film is. So Georgia, why don't you tell us what we're watching for next week? So again, like uh, Princess Bride was a departure from uh, what we had been watching. We've got another complete departure from uh, everything else. Although it is another French film, Um, so we're going back to France. And we are watching Moulin Rouge. Oh, okay. Moulin Rouge. Excellent. 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 So join us next week for Moulin Rouge and for Best Film Ever. I've been Ian. And I've been Liam. I've been Georgia. And I've been Ellie. And we'd like to remind you that there's such a 
shortage of perfect podcasts in this world and uh, it'll be a shame to put any harm to ours join us next time won't you thanks see you next time <laughs>